This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. Welcome to Eurograps Express. I'm your host, Neil David, and we're back to supposedly talk about all the happenings on the British and European wrestling scene. But just like a few episodes ago, we became a GCW podcast. This episode, we're a Shindy Hon podcast. Uh, we're talking about Royal Quest 2. Uh, very much Predator 2 to Royal Quest 1's uh, Predator. I think, uh, but it's a huge event. We've got to talk about it. And what a strange intro! I've I've just realised that I'm, I'm talking about this in a very kind of understated way. I'm I'm almost held back, and I'm almost defensive about it, and why I'm talking about it. When New Japan, if I look at my wrestling journey to be corny, I look at the the promotions that I have loved in my life, and it's been many. I'm not particularly wedded to any promotion. I'm wedded to good wrestling. But I think New Japan is probably the most significant promotion in my life. And if you're like me, I think you're probably the same. Unless you're older and you you were in the early 2000s, you were watching Noah, or in the mid-90s, you were watching New Japan. Uh, sorry, All Japan. I think for most of us, New Japan has been the best wrestling we've ever actually lived through, as in experienced it in real time. I remember when I was, you know, I was an Attitude Era kid, really. I'm a 90s kid, and, and it was it was that era. I was sort of late Hogan era, Bret Hart era, and then Attitude Era was where it all really took off for me. And I remember going to a market in Middleton, which is just, just outside of Manchester, and there was a wrestling shop there. And he had all sorts of tapes and things. And I was a, I was an early teens when this was happening. And I used to go and buy my Austin three sixteen t shirts and my my DX t shirts. And I've I used to buy posters that my mum had, had, had <laughs> would let me put put up on my wall. Every time you bought a uh, a t shirt, he gave you a free poster. And it was basically a laminated A three sheet. And the one that I had on my wall that my mum absolutely hated was. The Rock doing the people's eyebrow or the corporate eyebrow as it was at the time, and Steve Austin was giving him the middle finger, and I, obviously as a you know twelve thirteen year old lad that was just unbelievable, wasn't it? I mean, how subversive was it? <laughs> it was just you know, my mum was utterly ashamed that I had it up on my wall, and she'd go up and she'd take it down, and I put it back up, and and it. She'd never tell me to sort of put it in the bin. My mum was the sort of person that, that wanted me to make my own decision. You know, she wanted me to realise why I couldn't have that up on my wall. But I just couldn't. I, and even to this day, I just think it was it was the coolest thing. Um, well, maybe not, actually. Maybe it's kind of ridiculous. But anyway, this guy had all these tapes. He had, you know, Noah tapes. And he had, um, and he had this huge wall 
of the uh, best of the super juniors. Is it ninety four? The famous one, the Pegasus Kid one. And he he always try and push them on me, and I was never interested. You know, I I didn't I didn't want those tapes. I wanted to watch Austin three sixteen st- stun his boss. You know, I, I wanted to watch the big boss man being hung on a cell by his neck until dead. You know, <laughs> that was the sort of phase I went through. And I, I look back on that era with a little bit of regret, to be honest with you. I wonder what would have happened if I would have picked up one of those tapes, because the guy was very much a comic book guy. You know, he was like. Making all his money off this, off this attitude era boom, and selling all these t-shirts to to dorky teenagers like me, but you could tell really he, he, this is the sort of thing he, he was trying to push. You know, he wanted us to, he he didn't think we appreciated wrestling on the level that he did. But I, I never picked up those tapes, and you know, I, I never lived through those eras, and it, it became something that I had to go back and and watch after the fact. And that's never the same, is it? So the first era of great wrestling, as in not good, there's always good wrestling. You know, yes, wrestling goes in peaks and troughs, but there's always great wrestling somewhere. But for me, the only time wrestling has been transcendental almost in my life was that era of New Japan. You know, from Okada's first victory, winning the IWGP title, to Naito winning the double title at the Dome. That's the only time I've lived through wrestling with it, for me, feeling like it was on another level. And it's strange for someone who's been into wrestling for so long, and obviously I've seen lots of great wrestling, but what I'm talking about is living through it at the time. And I don't know if people have really come around to that yet. I think we do appreciate it, but we, you know, you look on cage matches, you look on grapple, and you look at what the greatest matches of all time are, and look at how many of them are from that era. We kind of caveat that almost, don't we, by saying, oh, well, you know, it was the online era, we could get things, and we could all live through it together, and it was the first era where cage match was around, and, and you know, we, but now we're starting to get that distance from it, or I am at least, I'm really starting to get an appreciation of how amazing that era was. I've gone back and I've I've watched Okada's original title run. And I watched it in real time. You know, I've seen it all before. But now to go back and watch it, there's so many matches that I'd forgotten about. Until I went back and watched them, I completely forgot they happened. Like, I'm thinking about, like, his first title defense against Naito back when Naito was still the Stardust genius, and it's in Corrigan Hall. And it's a superb match. And I can't believe that that match is almost forgotten, at least for me. And the only reason why is because it's embedded in so much transcendent wrestling. I think a lot of it as well is that it came about with me getting online and, and I was never I was never a, a message board guy. We didn't have the internet at home when I was a kid. It was only when I, I was about sort of twenty twenty one when we got decent internet outside and you know in the house. So I I, I missed the message board thing. I, I, that was never my kind of. I, I never had the opportunity to to get involved in that. But then by the time this modern New Japan era come around. I was writing for Voices of Wrestling. I was reviewing these shows. I was so engrossed in everything around it that it, it was just 
for me as a person, it's a, a really special time. And to, to think that that is, you know, 2018 or something sounds nuts, but I'm only just starting to get that appreciation of it. So in a way, I don't think this Royal Quest 2 could ever really live up to Royal uh, Royal Quest 1, could it? I mean, there's lots of other reasons as well, and, and a lot of it isn't New Japan's fault. Some of it is. You know, it, it's almost eye-rolly and cringy now to mention clap crowds and things, but it just it, that is what it is. It, it killed passion for that promotion. You know, the COVID killed a lot of things about wrestling, and it, it, unfortunately, New Japan, I think, was one of the victims. I think they also didn't deal with it very well themselves. I think when Evil got the belt, did I think it was going to be a quickie title change to establish him? You know, that that's that's something they do, isn't it? It's, it's, it's one of Gado's tricks that he has in his books that he'll he'll give someone a short title run to establish them as a championship challenger, but then sort of they'll lose the title and then they're just there as a threat. Really clever thing to do, I think. And it, it really add to that belt added to that belt, I think. What's cool about that championship is that They've established it as gaining that championship is actually the easy bit or the easier bit. The challenge is keeping it. And they built up that run where Okada beat Tanahashi's record of defences as, be, as, as being the thing. And I think that makes a lot more sense to me. I never really got this WWE thing of how many times you've won a championship. Because that doesn't really... I'm, I'm saying, I'm slagging off the WWE there, and I'm using their parlance. I'm calling them championships and not titles and belts. So, you know, what does that say about me? But it's always weird to me when you hear, like, you know, your Triple H and your Ric Flair's and that, and they're saying, oh, yeah, they're 15, 16, 17-time world champions. And you think, well, that means they lost it 18 times. To me, it's how many times you defend the belt, how long you keep it for. And that's what New Japan did really well. And I think of all these times in that in that run that are, are just some of the best things I've ever seen in wrestling. The Shibata match, a perfect piece of art. To me, that's the perfect wrestling match. And then the fact that to have that per- perfect wrestling match, a man nearly killed himself. He nearly killed himself for his art. And that adds a whole other layer to it, doesn't it? A whole other layer, layer of thought. And let's not be one-dimensional with that as well. Let's think about that properly. What would Shibata say? I wonder if you could ask him at various points since that happened. Was it worth it? How do you feel about that match? How do you feel about the cost of that match? You know, that Kenny Omega, the trilogy, the Omega Okada trilogy, the one-hour draw. The one-hour draw for me is one of the best wrestling matches I've ever seen. I remember not being able to watch it live. I was in work. It was a rare weekend I had to be in work. And I left my phone at home because I knew at some point a notification would come up or I would absentmindedly open Twitter and have things spoiled. And I remember sitting on the couch when I got back and my wife was there. And just little moments like Cody Rhodes ran to the ring 20 minutes in. And I, I shouted at the TV, and I never do this. I never I, I never get involuntarily ar- arrested by a match, very rarely anyway. And I'm shouting, no, 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 I don't want interference. And then he ended up not interfering. But I was just so engrossed in everything that was going on. 
And as a critic, I look back at those times and I, I, I read some of the reviews I did recently and I didn't review New Japan all that much. I mean, my beat was very much Rev Pro and the, the British scene, Progress, WXW, that, that kind of, that side of things. But I was lucky enough to get a few reviews of New Japan and I, I, I look back at what I'd written and what they gave me to chew on and, and to think about as a wrestling fan and as a wrestling critic. I really value that. I was lucky enough to review the G1 and Wrestle Kingdom in the same year, G1 final and the Wrestle Kingdom show. And just, I look back on those reviews of some of the best writing and the best wrestling criticism I've ever done. I mean, whether everyone read it or not, I, I think I think people did. I, I don't really know. And I, I don't really care either. From a, I, I want people to obviously listen to my stuff and enjoy it, but also the satisfaction that I got just for writing it. And I remember after that Wrestle Kingdom stood at my kitchen door having a fag and thinking about submitting it and giving it one last proofread and going, I really valued the opportunity to review that for a, a major website. And I'd, I'd, I'd look back on that with such warmth that this era of New Japan is never going to be able to live up to that. It was always going to come to an end. And it's a little bit of a cliche, isn't it? But if you never experience sadness, you never experience happiness. And if this era would have gone on forever, it would have made that era less special. So Royal Quest 2 is kind of a victim of circumstances in that respect. That it is never going to be as special because it wasn't part of perfection, of a perfect era of wrestling. And I can, I, you know, I'm saying this now and I can still feel some people are thinking, oh, it wasn't that good, or, you know, oh, you know, you know, it's not as good as as nineties all Japan, and that's a, a valid take. And in a lot of ways, I do kind of prefer nineties all Japan. And there there are times, it's kind of that thing of it's the it's the one you watch the most recently, isn't it? So if you spend the time watching a load of nineties all Japan, then you're probably going to think that's the best era for that moment. But then, like I say, I've just watched a load of that era of New Japan, and now I'm on a on a high for that particular era. But I think there are a lot of people in wrestling who are really stubborn and I don't think they allowed themselves to invest in it in real time, kind of in the podcast era of wrestling, when we have to be down on things and critical of things. And you sort of let that pass you by. Don't get me wrong, I love being down and critical on things. I am not a fan of toxic positivity in the slightest. I get... A lot of joy of ranting and raving in the middle of a Saturday night to you guys while stuffing my face with cheese. But I think there's some people who didn't allow themselves to get into something really, really special. Anyway, I don't know why I'm talking about this because we should be talking about Royal Quest 2. Uh, it was a, wasn't at the Copper Box, which is a shame because the Copper Box was fantastic. Uh, easily the most accessible venue I've ever been in. And I know that's not everybody's concern, but it was really important to me as a disabled bloke. And I, it was, it, I didn't have to worry about hobbling up and down stairs if I was having a bad day with my back or anything like that. And then I, I got to watch a genuine IWGP title defence. A proper one. Not a, a token one. Not one that was just sort of put in there because it was, you know, to, to, to sort of crowd please or anything like that. The Suzuki versus Okada was a genuine, genuine title match. And I will never forget getting to see it. I will never forget seeing Tanahashi and seeing him become the champion of the British. 
I'll never forget being surrounded by thousands of people and screaming at the top of my lungs, Kaze ni nare. Like just, that is an experience that, I've, I've said this before on the podcast, but that's an experience that I think absolutely every wrestling fan should have. Just seeing Suzuki live, even if you're not watching a major thing, and obviously, you know, time is running out for that sort of thing with him. But you've just got to see it, haven't you? I was talking in uh, our Discord. If you go in the Voices of Wrestling Discord, there's a Eurograps Express room. And it was to Stee, I believe. He was talking about the entrance of Suzuki. And I think the word that he used was, it was a treat. And I, I, I love that. A little bit of British understatement there, but that's what it is. To see Suzuki live is a treat. Uh, I think everyone should have it at least once in their lives. But I feel like I'm setting myself up for failure here a little bit because I'm talking about how amazing that era was and we got a major show and then it all, you know, the rug was pulled out with COVID and, and their terrible booking decisions later on and clap crowds and all that stuff. But we have got Royal Quest 2. And let's not sell this show short. Because there are a lot of people who went to that show live who came out of night one saying that they'd seen not just the best tag match they'd ever seen, but potentially the best match they'd ever seen live in Aussie Open against FTR. There are a lot of people whose opinions I trust, whose opinions I respect and listen to, that said that was one of the best tag team matches of all time. So, I need to get off my little negative trip, don't I? I need to get that critical lens on and give it a fair shake of the stick. So, let's do just that. Let's go down south to that London, to Crystal Palace, and review Royal Quest Nights 1 and 2. You know, I've just realised, I said I was a bit, you know, being a bit of a negative Nelly about this sort of thing. But it's so weird, isn't it, that when you look at things like Grapple and you look at the high level of matches that New Japan have had, they released a, uh, he does graphics every now and then, Gareth, and he releases, you know, the top 10 rated matches of a quarter or of a month or whatever it might be. And if you look at the last few months, some are like four out of the top 10 rated matches are from New Japan. So, you know, it's it's they are hitting. It's such a weird promotion at the minute, isn't it? Because they are consistently still hitting on such a high level, but it's so bogged down in perception, and there's also a lot of rubbish on the card to balance things out as well. That it's it's a really hard promotion to evaluate. I think a lot of it for me as well is that they're not really having the big killer matches that they used to have. Like, for me, I, I watch it, and I get a bit of a Finn Balor from it. You know the way Prince Devitt could always have a four and a quarter or a four and a half, but he never quite seemed to be able to manage the four and three quarters and the five? And that's kind of where I'm at with New Japan at the minute. Like, there's a bit of a ceiling on them. And when you look at the cards for this and you compare it to Royal Quest 1, which in some ways might be unfair, but at the same time, you put a number at the end, so you're naturally going to compare these things. This one feels very much like it's a secondary concern. 
You know, the same way that Royal Quest 1 just felt like a New Japan show. It felt like it could have happened in Osaka or Tokyo and you would have had the same card. With this, there was a bit more of the sense of a joint show with Red Pro. There were lots of people there who I think to a wider audience might be seen as local talent. Which to me, they're not. And to us, they're not. They're people who we really like and we're really excited to see them there. But in terms of perception, it does take away a little bit, I think, perhaps for, for people who are outside of our bubble, in the Eurograps bubble. But anyway, let's talk about some matches because, like I say, I've got there's some crackers and there's some things in this that I'm, I think I've got a few controversial takes on. First match we had was Gabriel Kidd against Dan Maloney. And I'm starting to wonder, if I'm out to lunch with Dan Maloney, because obviously I listen to a lot of other podcasts and I listen to a, a read a, a lot of criticism about New Japan because uh, about uh, the British scene, I should say. And it seems like I'm always the high man on Dan Maloney. I think it might be because he just meets my very particular idea of what I want wrestlers to be. I like them to be these jacked up chavs who go out and batter each other. I, I like that genuine intimidation that people like Dan Maloney can can put across. But I don't know if everybody feels the same way. And he's against Gabriel Kidd here. And to me, I I mean, I love Gabriel Kidd. That, that's not a, a secret. That's not a hot take. I think everyone does. But I think Dan Maloney's just as good as Gabriel Kidd. And it's, it's strange, isn't it? I, that I don't really know where Dan Maloney is in the wrestling world because... In a lot of ways, he feels like he's a big fish in a small pond. To me, he's head and shoulders above the vast majority of the British scene. Apart from, I mean, if, if you discount Will Ospreay, because he's, he's international, isn't he? And same with Zack Sabre Jr. Is there only really somebody like a Ricky Knight Jr. who's on his level? And it feels now what Dan Maloney needs is someone to pick him up and put him in that next level, to put him in a new Japan, so we can see, right, what can you really do? Because you can have absolute brilliant matches and do brilliant things on the British scene, which is, you know, we, we, we don't pull punches about things on this show, do we? It's not what it was. And he's still operating at that high level. And I wonder what would happen to him if he was in a New Japan more regularly. And he could have matches with Gabriel Kidd like this. You know, he was just swinging arms and shoves and violence and, and genuine fighting as well in this match that really elevated everything Dan Maloney does that's, that's great. I think what this needed, this match, and it was a really great, well, it was a good match, it was a high threes match, and there were so many things about it that I love, like, Dan Maloney would get booted, but then he'd, he'd, he'd smirk afterwards, and then point to the crowd, and everybody just got, you know, just those little moments that are just absolute fodder to a crowd of, of Gabriel Kidd sitting on his hands and knees, waiting for a jacked up chav like Dan Maloney to boot him in his back, and things like that are just evergreen. They're just always going to be captivating. There was just a few things in this that I just felt the structure was a little bit cliched. You know, like they did the knockout side and then Gabriel Kidd went for the dive. And there were things that felt like 
they were doing it because that's what you do in matches. And I feel like people like Kid and Maloney need to be around people who are better wrestlers than them. Because they've got the raw ability and the raw skill and the raw charisma. They just need a little bit more around them. It's interesting that they kept mentioning that Kadani was there. They kept mentioning on the commentary that that high-level New Japan brass was there. And that might have been, I think I saw Kidani actually. He was in like a skybox behind the, the entrance ring. But it, it might not have been because he was, he was far away. But it would be interesting if that's just something that co- the commentary is saying. Because obviously kayfabe's kayfabe, isn't it? But I wonder if someone like Kidani was watching someone like Dan Maloney. And what he might think. Because I suppose he's not past being a young boy, is he? If that's what they wanted to do with him. I mean, look at Juice Robinson. I think in answer to my question at the start, I do think Dan Maloney's ready. I think he's not only ready, I think it's necessary that he starts operating at a higher level with these people because otherwise he's just going to end up spinning his wheels. You know, he's been on this great trajectory on the British scene going up and up and up and up, but he's getting to the point where there's not really an anymore, unless you're going to make him like your Red Pro champion, there's, a, there's only a very small rung for him to increase now and I, I think he needs to start looking elsewhere he needs to start looking outside the country which makes me sad then we had Gideon Gray and the Great Okan against Ricky Knight Jr and Michael Oku and what an absolute pleasure to see Gideon Gray scream undefeated again talking about going and looking at the past I loved Great Okan's excursion for a lot of reasons. I didn't always love the matches. I loved chewing on it and thinking about it. But I love Great Okan's, uh, sorry, Gideon Gray's work with Great Okan. I just, the promos in that era, that year, 2019, I've said this so many times. I've said it on Twitter. I've said it in articles. Gideon Gray should have got votes for best on interviews of the Observer Award. He should have placed. I'm not saying he should have won it. He, he would have been my first choice. But, you know, I understand he wouldn't have been everybody's. But he should have finished higher. So weird to watch Great Okan come out here because I really hated that gimmick at first. You know, the napkin over his face. And I had this thing whenever I'd write about him. I'd, I'd, I'd try, because obviously I'm a bit snobby. I'd, I'd try and come up with a ever-increasingly weird analogies for him. You know, like he's he's, sto- he's walking like he's stolen his parents' sherry and, and all this. But... It's amazing how he's made that gimmick into something absolutely fantastic. And the great Okan is just absolutely brilliant, I think. And, and the crowd did as well, because he was so, so over here. The Gideon Grey character is slightly different, and this was added to by the commentary as well. But it's a funny one with Gideon Grey, because... He is a manager to me. He's not a good wrestler. I, I I feel bad saying it because I like him and I think he's great. But he isn't a good wrestler. And that's sort of always been the thing with him. That there would be times in Red Pro where he would wrestle. And it was, it was kind of a bit exposing almost. I've heard people say that he's a great wrestling mind. And that he, he's got an, uh, an aptitude and, and a genius for blocking out matches and putting them together. But when he actually does it himself, he's not that great. But what New Japan have done is made that part of his gimmick. He isn't a very good wrestler. He's not supposed to be a very good wrestler. And 
Chris Charlton's come up with this whole backstory for him. Well, I assume it's Chris Charlton. It might even be Gideon Gray himself. But he's come up with this whole backstory for him that he was this rich, privileged toff whose parents paid for him to train as a wrestler and paid for him to get into all these places. And he's in the United Empire because he's got money and that's why they have him around and they tolerate him. And they really lead into that here, you know, all the time about him, you know, he'd, he'd, he'd run away and he, all his, his moves would be, would be, It'd be completely ineffectual, you know, and he just, he was, he was a really interesting thing that I'm sort of on the fence about whether or not I like it because it's testing my rule of I don't really like comedy wrestling, but I, I think I actually might uh, in this regard. The crowd didn't really engage with Oku here until the end, and I think this is actually a credit to Oku. That sounds like a criticism, but there was a bit at the start where he tried to do the now we play thing, and the crowd either didn't know it or didn't go with it because they were so into Great Okan. But there's just something about Michael Oku that wins people over. And it was through doing amazing things, you know, like he did his, his his great flip over the top rope and he was just a great wrestler for great old Khan to go through his greatest hits with. He was he was sympathetic in that sense. And same with Ricky Knight Jr. He absolutely got over here. This just by doing those sequences that he does with the thrilling drop kicks and the thunderous leaps and doing things that are very standard in a lot of ways and you see very, very often, but doing them in a devastating and brutal way. Just he's just a great wrestler, Ricky Knight Jr. And, and you, when you in front of a crowd like this, they respond to that and they recognise that. And he 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 really really got over. I loved RKJ pinning Gideon Gray while looking straight into the camera. You know that's what I mean about the little bits that he gets, the little bits that he does. That it's not just the physicality part of things with Ricky Knight Jr. Although that's obviously fantastic. It's the way he carries himself and the way he wrestles and the way he acts. He's just absolutely superb. Next up, we've got a bit of an awkward topic of conversation, I think. Because there was women women's matches on, on these shows. And I'm not really going to get into the debate about whether there should be women on New Japan cards because my opinion is kind of twofold in that generally I don't really have an opinion on it because I know that Joshi Wrestling, I don't watch it, but I know that for the people that like it, it's a very high level and people really like it. But at the same time, if you're going to put women in New Japan, I'm not going to say no to that. You know, I'm not. My allegiance, as I said, is to good wrestling. So they're doing this IWGP women's title and there's going to be a tournament and some of this tournament is going to take place on this show and it's going to be Ava White against Jazzy Gabbert. They're starting with a tag match, Kanji and Gabbert against Windsor and White. And to me, my problem with this whole setup is that they've chosen wrestlers who aren't very good. And I feel, I think you can hear it in my voice, how awkward I feel about saying that. Because I'm judging someone like Ava White as a finished product. And she very, very much is not. She is incredibly green. And she's got a lot of stuff about her that's promising. She carries herself well. 
She looks like a star. It's just, she's not ready for this. And I'm criticising her because I have to criticise her through the lens of someone who's wrestling on major shows. And she's not ready to be on major shows. But what do you do? Do you pull your punches? Well, you can't, can you? You've got to talk about what you see in front of you. And she's just green. Her offense is awkward and clunky. She makes a lot of mistakes like green wrestlers do. And when you're watching Pro Wrestling Chaos in a school in front of 150 people, you understand that. But when you're in front of 2,000 people on a major show, you can't really forgive that. And I know what they do in these things, and you know, by doing these tag matches to sort of a get you excited, but also there was an opportunity to kind of hide things a little bit until the match. You know, keep them separated. If they're not going to have a great deal of things they can do in the ring, you don't want to run through it all together. So you keep them separated in a tag match. But by having someone in there like Alex Windsor, who's absolutely superb, it kind of exposed it. So on the one hand, they were trying to hide. Or, well, maybe not, maybe they weren't trying, I don't know. But they were, it was serving a purpose of hiding Ava White and Jazzy Gabbett's weaknesses. Because Jazzy, Jazzy Gabbett, I mean, she's a veteran. She's been around for a long time. She's not very good. She never really has been. But also, you're just sort of exposing the fact by having Alex Windsor in there, who's absolutely amazing, absolutely fantastic. You're thinking, well, why can't we have just had Alex Windsor? I don't know why, because she's champions for multiple places. But even Kanji. Kanji's not my favourite women's wrestler in the world either. I think she's okay. I think she's got a lot about her that I like. She would have been a better choice than Ava White. Jazzy Gabba is fundamentally okay. You know, we can we, we can put her in this position. But why put why put a rookie? Why do it to her as well? You know, it feels like you know, she's not gonna say no to this booking. Of course she isn't, and she shouldn't say no to it. But that old cliche, the toothpaste being out the tube, you can only have your first major match once. I, ju- I, I just don't know why she was put in this position. I, th- I think if she's... Ava White is somebody who you want to work on and you see as a prospect, completely agree with that. I think she's somebody who has potential. But you've blown it way too fast for me with her. And we'll talk about that more later on. Next, we had a six-man. Hiromu, Sanada and Naito against Zack Sabre Jr., Dookie and Despi. The crowd was so electric for this. And, and, and this was more of a case in night two. But like always, the British crowd are great. And uh, get 2,000 people together. And the chance and the, the appreciation of what they're seeing just, just really comes through. And I absolutely love watching Suzuki Gun wrestle in these multi-man tags. Because actually, there's not really a great deal to say about the actual match. It was very much a, a New Japan six-man match which is always of a certain standard but you've seen him so many times you're not going to get that excited but there's just something about Suzuki Gun that do it so much better than everybody else for me they wrestle like a pack of wolves you know the way that these things always descend into chaos and you know someone will run across to the other side and push someone off the apron and all that jazz well with this you know Suzuki could just come out of nowhere and just get violent so quickly that it just it's utterly utterly captivating and Zack Sabre Jr., I mean, to me, he's the best British wrestler of his generation. And I know you're thinking Will Ospreay's in there. I think Zack Sabre Jr. is better than Will. Oh, do I? 
I don't know. You don't have to choose. Who cares? They're both brilliant. And Zack Sabre Jr., when he gets going, he's so good. You know, the speed, but it's the sense of his work. You know, the sense that he... That he knows this technical wrestling so well. He knows how to make it look painful. Because often other technical wrestlers that people really like. They make it look very technical. But they make it look very gentle. Whereas Zack Sabre Jr. just doesn't. Everything he does looks brutal. So this this was actually alright. Next match we had a really strange one here. We had Ishii and Okada. Against Bad Dude Tito. And Zack Knight. Yes, that Zack Knight from the from the Knight Dynasty. Um, it, it should have been Jonah, but the, because of the hurricane in in Florida, Jonah couldn't get over. And he's he's getting some big opportunities here, isn't he? And again, this is something that as a match, it was it was fine. You know, it was a crowd pleaser. It was very much watching the stars like Ishii and Okada go through their. Um, go through the motions, which is, you know, they're great motions, you know, so if you're live and you're seeing that, you're, you're going to really get into it, but what was interesting about this is Okada, excursion Okada, Okada on holiday, he's such a, a, a different Okada, the way he kind of plays to the crowd and the way he gets them jazzed and into things, he's always really interesting, you know, he's always... Out a strange thing to see. He seems happy, you know. He seems like and you get you sort of get like dragged. I don't know if I'm just being soft with that, but you kind of just get dragged along with it. Um, again, you know, uh, Zach Knight was good here. You know, he's he's not a star. You know, he's he's not somebody who you're gonna watch and they go, oh, "Yeah, we should sign him" or anything like that. But he was the perfect replacement here for Jonah because he's a solid veteran hand and he, he did what he was supposed to do and he did it well and if it gets him more bookings I think that would be really really a good idea because he's somebody who you could just put in a position and you know he's going to be a perfect technical base for something that you're trying to do and he did well here so then we had um, Yota Suji come out and challenge Ishii and I'm thinking yes because I love Yota Suji. It's just something about his grin. The fact he's such a massive prick. He's so arrogant. You know, he thinks he could just walk out and challenge Ishii. I just, I, I really loved. Then we had a big eight-man. Hikaleo, Jado, uh, Tanahashi and Tamatonga against the Good Brothers, White and Gado. I'm a bit... I don't like a lot of wrestlers in this match and that kind of set me up a little bit to not be inclined to enjoy it and I'd be, I know I'm being very diplomatic there so I'm going to stop being diplomatic I've had enough of the Good Brothers I know that's probably the coldest take I've ever had on the podcast but I'm tired of this weird kind of brother-brother stuff that they do that I, I don't appreciate it I get that it's part of what the Bullet Club do. You know, there's always been this seasoning of irony to the Bullet Club, hasn't it? That they're these corny 90s heels in a work rate promotion. And that's kind of what they're all about. But then the Good Brothers have taken it to a next step that they that they brother brother you and that they they turn up and it's all about the least amount of effort and all that business. And they'll they're all about getting a payday and things. And I understand that that's what a lot of wrestlers are. And to be critical of that as a fan is a fool's errand because that just is what it is. And it's it's like that in most creative industries. 
but I just don't really find it endearing <laughs> when it's so blatant. You know, and then, I mean, what a pair of scabs. Hey, how about that? Going right back to the WWE as soon as their Uncle Paul gets in control and taking a belt with him as well. Uh, especially because it's Carl Anderson taking the belt because Carl Anderson, he's so good when he wants to be, isn't he? There's so many Carl Anderson matches like the G1 final, and there's another one that I always remember. Do you know how you just remember certain weird matches? He had um, an IWGP Intercontinental title shot against Nakamura when Nakamura was plagued with the white belt that he hated. And I remember the opening sequence of that match really clearly. It was a really great technical exchange. You know, the the old putting you in leg locks and kicking out and, you know, and all that stuff. And then it, it was really exciting and interesting. And then Carl Anderson just stopped Tanahashi doing it and basically said, let's not do this. And pointed at his chin and said, let's fight. And I just love that little moment and those little bits that show he's got a great brain for wrestling. But we're stuck with Doc Gallows, who, who utterly stinks. Doc Gallows. Doc Gallows, Doc Gallows has never had a good match. He's never had a good match. And he's probably proud of that fact as well, which makes it even worse. But I don't want to see him. Jay White, again, I'm really conflicted about because Jay White I do like, and I've written articles about how much I liked Jay White's original run with the IWGP belt, you know, when he was he first started doing the Bullet Club stuff. And it was when... You know, New Japan was starting to move away a little bit from being pure work rate and getting into this kind of weird story-heavy stuff. And I was into it with Jay White. The problem for me was when Jay White lost the belt and he had that breakdown, didn't he? Do you remember? And he was doing these great promos of having this existential crisis of not knowing what he wanted to be anymore. And I got so invested in that story that even when I wasn't always watching the shows, I'd always watch Jay White's promos. You know, I might put the show on in the background, but then really concentrate on his promos. And the problem with it is the payoff. It was so frustrating that they ended up doing nothing with that. You know, there were two ways that they could go. They could either go to JY absolutely doubling and tripling down on being the bad guy. You know, realising that all these things that he'd done weren't working but because he wasn't doing enough of them and the shenanigans and the cheating and the ruthlessness went through the roof. Or, as it would be the usual way of telling these stories, he realised that it wasn't working because he was a better wrestler than that and he could be more successful by just wrestling. And I think both of those outcomes would have been captivating and interesting and would have been a great story. But the problem was they just didn't tell either of those. They just ended up having him be the same. I'm probably going into too much analysis here for just... A, it was just a multi-man tag match. But there were some really cool spots in this, like Jay um, scrapping through the barricade, you know, bursting through was, was, was really cool. So there were some good bits in this, but it was what it was. Then we had Amino versus Osprey. And Shota, I think, is a strange one. And if, if you follow this show and you watch the British wrestling along with me, you've probably seen Shota Umino a lot more than, than other audiences. 
And I'm starting to get a little bit concerned that Shota Umino isn't what people think he is. I think the Moxley connection and the coolness of the shooter and the Death Riders thing is is undeniably great. And he has something about him. He's got some kind of star power to him. But often when the bell rings, it's disappointing. There always seems to be in every match something that Shota does that takes you out of it a little bit, whether it's doing something a little bit too slowly or landing like this. In this particular case, it was landing a little bit awkwardly. I think it was a flapjack and he just couldn't quite land it. And I feel like maybe because of the position that I'm in, I'm a little bit more critical of people like Shota Rumino because you're invited to be by the Young Lion system. But I just don't know, again, if he's what people expect him to be. But Osprey's Osprey, isn't he? And Osprey could have a good match with me, and I've got Spina Bifida. You know, the way he ducked from uh, Shota's. Uh, Shota was like swinging his arms trying to hit him, and he ducked and laughed, and the arrogance and the way he danced around after those little moments, just completely dismissing Shota Umino. Was, he's so good at being the baddie. The, brilliant stuff. And then the speed kicked up. This was great. You know, there was big kicks and you know, huge dives, and it was just, I started to see something he showed to Umino towards the end that I'd not seen him before, you know, it was that resilience that he got, you know, that he, he was able to, across, you know, that he was he was going up against somebody who is an ethereal next level talent, but he was able to kind of fight back, and the ending of this was the elbow spot, you know, like, he's been doing it a bit, Osprey, when he just gets someone on the mat and ground and pounds the back of the head until the referee has to stop it. With an added layer here, by the way, that Red Shoes was the referee. So it was his own son that was being beaten into the mat in front of him, which is just a, a nice little wrinkle. I think the commentary went a little bit too heavy with it. I think moments like that should be subtle because otherwise you kind of lose it a little bit. It just becomes a bit of a family melodrama. It should be kept as something stoic because that mirrors what Red Shoes is going through, whether he is comfortable watching his son get hurt like this. I think what I love more about that spot with the elbows is the like the furore around it. The fact that it annoys people, that people seem to think it's this awful thing. That it's not safe. Whereas for one, I guarantee that it is absolutely safe. I'd put money on it. And two it just looks awesome, doesn't it? It just looks so cool. And I'm not a safety fetishist at all. I mean, I, I, I obviously, if I'm choosing, do I want my wrestlers to be safe or unsafe? I'm choosing safe. But at the same time, if you read Wrestling 101, this brilliant series that uh, Rob Reed's doing for the for the for the website, uh, it's it's been absolutely fantastic. And they they did uh, Hell in a Cell this time. And you look at that and think, yeah, maybe what wrestling's dangerous is actually quite cool. So, whatever. Now, next one's the big one. It's FTR against Aussie Open. And again, this is being called Match of the Year, five stars. And it's tricky going in when you've not seen it live because you're going in with that expectation. And I think sometimes when you're watching this match from a critical point, or a match like this from a critical point of view, there's only one way they can go, isn't there? They can only really go backwards. 
because if you say it's the greatest match of all time, I'm going to look at it through that lens and thinking, well, is it the greatest match of all time? Which is a bit of an unfair lens. I mean, I'll, I'll cut to the chase here. I, I, I don't think it's the greatest match of all time. I don't think it was the best match this weekend. I was a little bit disappointed with this one. And I think part of this comes from how I feel about FTR. I don't think they're as good as people say they are. And I think they're great. I think they're really, really good. But I think there was something about this matchup in particular, with Aussie Open, that didn't really work for me. I think the strengths of each team were almost diametrically opposed. They almost juxtaposed each other in some ways. Because FTR really rely on structure, and Aussie Open really rely on chaos. Aussie Open are at their best when they're against, you know, a team that can just sort of flip, like I was thinking, all these matches they had against the Velocities, that could just sort of break down into almost a Tornado tag style, and they could do their fast tag team moves, not worry about rules, that they could just impress us with these amazing, fast, powerful things that they could do. But FTR work best when they can structure very, heavy spot-based things. You know, things like false tags, blind tags, I should say. Things like running around the ring and pulling people off aprons. Things like building to hot tags. And Aussie Open, that's just not where their strengths are. And they're both, I think Aussie Open are the best tag team in the world. I think FTR are really, really good. But there was just something about the way those two styles mixed in this match that just didn't really work for me on that level. And you know the level I'm talking about. I think this match needed to be much more judicious with its spots. You know, there was this idea of keeping um, Bald away from the hot tag. Well, Bald was going to come in and do the hot tag and keeping Hair away. And they just... They did it too many times, and there were too many times where it was like grabbing a leg and hopping as he pulled, he was as he was pulled back. Too many ways of doing it that just didn't really work. It just it, it didn't really gel and smooth itself over into a, into a, a real feel. That's a really clumsy sentence, that isn't it? I'm not editing that out. I would normally edit that out. I like that. It didn't smooth itself over and gel with a real feel. That's my crit. You can quote that and put it on a DVD. Um, there were things in this like they they bleed, and it just yeah they bled from the chops, which was great. But then later on there was blade jobs that just felt like they were doing it because they wanted to do a blade job because that's what cool wrestling has, and. There were bits in this that where it got great, like with big dives to the outside, and when it got chaotic, and Aussie Open were able to 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 have that strength uh, put on display, especially with Fletcher. You know, his horrific speed and his his style of utter violence out of nowhere. He's so good, but there was just too much here. It was just it was too much of the simulacre of good wrestling without it actually being good. And I'll tell you what, there were some things that bothered me, and this was a really weird thing because, as I'm saying, a lot of the drama in this match came from them building up things like hot tags, and that relies on rules. 
But there were times in this where the rules were just completely disregarded. There was one time in particular where there was a double pin. Red Shoes stood there and didn't count a a visual pin on one side of the ring. And then there was another pin down on the other uh, side of the ring. And then he counted both. So you're asking me to invest in the rules of the match when it's convenient for you. But then you're asking me to disregard the rules of the match when you want to do a cool spot. And that's what I mean about FTR being too reliant on spots. And I'm using spot in the derogative way. Because we talked about this a lot before. I love a good spot. I love a high spot. I love just an exciting... Of course I love watching wrestlers do exciting things. And there were spots in this that I really liked. Like the double, there was a double sharpshooter. And... Only Davies could tap because he was the legal man. And Fletcher was slapping him in the face to get him riled and get him to the ropes. But again, you're asking me to use this idea of the tag team rules to get invested in this spot, but disregard them for me to get me invested in another spot earlier on. And these might sound like nitpicks, and I know things like that matter more to me than they do to most people. And I know they matter less to a live crowd than they do from someone watching it at 1 o'clock in the morning on a Friday. But if we're talking greatest match of the year, that's where those distinctions are made. That's when wrestling shows where sort of you find its worth, you know, on that level. So did I think this was a good match? Yes. Did I think it was a great match? Yeah, probably. But it's right on that border. And it's. A, it, it, I think a lot of it is live bump, I think, with this match. And I think if I was in this ma- uh, watching this match live, if I was in the room, I probably would be agreeing with the people who were speaking about it so highly. But I can't help but come away from this feeling a little bit disappointed. They were just, again, just too many. I'm just looking at the notes here, and there were just too many little things like choreographed duels. You know, like they do the the fighting, the, you know, the, the sort of the exchange in the forearms, but they do sort of two against two at the set. And it just, it felt choreographed too often for it to, to take that next level for me. So what I was seeing often was really cool and really exciting, but it, there was just too many... Too many little dots next to next to it, you know. Too many little chin scratches for it to really sort of be considered great. There was also a belt spot as well, you know, which obviously, if you've listened to my stuff before, you know I'm not going to like. Um, yeah, so a bit disappointed really with that one because I did really think I was going to, I was going to be absolutely, utterly invested in it, and I would argue that the live crowd weren't quite as invested as people are making out. And my evidence for this, and again, you might think I'm clutching at straws, but there were two chants at the back end of this match. There was, this is wrestling and fight forever. And I don't think you do those chants if you're completely invested in the story in front of you. I really don't. And I can't necessarily put my finger on why. I've been thinking about this. I watched it and walked the dog for about an hour thinking about this, which is a bit pathetic. But I just don't know if it gels. You know, you're saying fight forever, but you're supposed to be rooting for one side to win. 
you know, it's almost like by chanting fight forever, you're taking a step back and watching it as a wrestling match, not as a story, as a competition. And I think the best matches you view as a story in a competition, they force you to view it as a story in competition. You know, how many great wrestlers do you watch who you know are going to lose, yet they can convince you that they're going to win? You know what I mean? It's that kind of thing that I think this match was missing. And if we're talking greatest match of all time, you can't get away with that. So if I'm honest, night one, little bit of a disappointment. There was some okay stuff on this, but there was nothing great. But let's get on to night two, because they've <laughs> some people are doing double duty. So here we go. Uh, Royal Quest, night two. The crowd were noticeably hotter in night two. And I don't know if that's because of the production. The production was Rev Pro production. So you can sort of take that. You know, you kind of get the idea from that, don't you, of what it is that that's going to be like. It wasn't the best. But the sound was good, which made all the difference because they recorded the commentary after the event. I thought the actual commentary itself was pretty bad overall. I mean, I'm not... Oh, can I say this? I don't know. I don't really like Kevin Kelly that much. I don't think he's bad, but I think that he's a bit corny and a bit cliched. He's a bit G-shuck sometimes, and I don't know if he's... He's definitely a personal preference. He's not bad. He's good at what he does. I just don't think what he does is always for me. And it was just a few, you know, two mates having a good time whilst commentating on this, which I think in some shows, can add to it. You know, if you're watching AEW Dark, listening to Taz, it felt like that, that's it. That's sort of how it felt. You know, that AEW Dark of Taz and Excalibur larking around. And when you're watching AEW Dark, that's great. But when I'm watching Royal Quest, I don't know if I want that. Um, But night two, anyway, starting with Robbie X and Oku against Dookie and Desperado. And... There wasn't much to report here, but is it kind of cliche to point out that Robbie X is quick? Because I, despite how many Robbie X matches I watch, because he seems to be on every British show, I never get bored of watching him wrestle because there's just something so physically impressive about what he does, something so captivating about how he moves that he's always, always going to be great. I mean, this was just, it was what it was, you know. Uh, Oku was definitely more over uh, tonight, uh, at night two. And it was never in doubt that Robbie X and Michael Oku were going to lose. So they went through a bit of a greatest hits. Um, I thought Robbie X definitely more than held his own against Despy, but they were pinned pretty quick. It was just Robbie X and Oku doing the moves and then getting pinned, which is fine. You know, it's an exciting opener. That's not necessarily a criticism. Next up was the Young Guns against Hiromu and Sanada. Really weird, isn't it? Watching when you have these moments, these really bizarre special shows, and you're watching Ethan Allen against Sanada, and you just think, you know, it's weird. But I love the exchange. You know, they just had a really cliche headlock, hammerlock, flip out exchange. They both tried a drop kick at the end. It was just, it was very much a opening match uh, exchange. But I, I've forgotten about Ethan Allen. I think, if you think back to before he got injured, and I know um, 
obviously Luke Jacobs has just really come into his own in the past few months, and he's become somebody who is who is posi- positioned himself and planted himself as a star. It's easy to forget just how good Ethan Allen is. They were always a strange tag team back in the day because it always felt like Ethan Allen had the wrestling talent and the charisma and Jacobs had the look. And now I think that Jacobs has more than caught up Ethan Allen, but that doesn't take away from how Ethan Allen moves. He moves differently and he moves in a really exciting way. The Hiromu Jacobs exchange was okay. You know, Hiromu allowed Jacobs to be dominant, which was which was appropriate. But Hiromu was doing a bit wacky. You know, you know the way he is. Hiromu He's a bit wacky, isn't he? And I don't always like wacky. Hiromu could overcome it because he's Hiromu. But wacky is a hard one for me to sort of get over. Um, so again, this wasn't meant to be anything spectacular. This was again a, a tag team for the for the for the live crowd. They were paradise paradise locks in it, which I'm sure you can guess how <laughs> how I feel about the paradise lock. I think it's just hard, isn't it, when people are in import mode, and and Hiromu and Sonata were definitely in import mode. So it was it was it, it was what it was. You know, there was a low blow and stuff, which was just all right then. Then we have the match we talked about before, Jazzy Gabbert versus Ava White. You know, Ava White's not ready. She's as green as grass. Everything she does is clumsy. Her strikes are weak. She screams all the way through everything all the time, and it's too much. And I feel guilty saying this because I shouldn't be having these thoughts about her. You know, I should be saying... There's a lot about her, you know, like she does these cool kicks, and she's. They kept saying she's got a dance background on the, um, on the commentary, which she's obviously going to stand her in really good stead for this sort of thing. I just have to criticize her through the lens of being on a New Japan show, and they clearly had to push themselves to do something special. And when they pushed themselves, they did dangerous things, like she nearly dropped Jazzy Gabbard on her head. And again, I'm not a safety nerd. I think it is what it is. I can, I can, I can accept that these people put themselves at risk and and they know what they're doing, but they just shouldn't have been put in a position where they had to push themselves to that extent. I don't think. I just think this was a a really silly match. Neither could really adapt to each other. They, you know, somebody make a mistake, and it makes me think actually with with workers. How when things are happening so smooth, how much of that is just coming naturally? You know, how often does somebody do something that wasn't quite expected, but the other worker in the ring has the quality to just be able to run with it, and nobody would ever know. I mean, I guess I've answered my own question there, haven't I? It must it must happen all the time, but we never actually get to find out about it. But here they couldn't do that, so Ava White would do the up and over thing, and Jazzy Gabbert didn't run under her. You know, like in the corner they do the the legs up, and there was always these moments of it just stopping because they didn't neither of them really knew what to do so yeah this was this was a bad match it was a bad match and you, you can't escape that as much as i i really like Ava White and i think she's got potential and i want her to do well this was a bad match and it's a shame that this is how she's been introduced to the wider wrestling world you know she's not just somebody that people like you and me know it's somebody it's, she's on new japan world now doing this it's just a bit of a shame. 
Then we had another big tag match. Uh, Shota, FTR, RKJ and Kid against Aussie Open, Great Okan uh, and Osprey. And do you know what? For a New Japan multi-man with a few sprinklings of extra talent in there, I really enjoyed this. I thought this was really good. The bell rung and Umino went straight for, <laughs> uh, went straight off to fight Osprey, which is always good. You know, and you know how I feel about a bell going and people fighting. A really great exchange of this was Great Okada against Bald. It was a really, really great exchange. And Great Okan is so over. There's something about him. I don't know if it's the if it's the saving the kid thing or the, the arrogance of him or the I don't know. Great Okan, he's a star, he's what it is. He's a star. That's that's exactly what it is in a nutshell. He could just carry himself like a star. Um he bumped like crazy. He cleared everyone out. Um the standout, though, actually, was probably RKJ. Again, the speed and the brutality. I, I think that... I don't know if we're going to get the British title defended on Tokyo Dome shows, but he's the champion, and I think he should. Um, and I suppose we're getting close because uh, Great Okan got the pin here, and he actually pinned RKJ, and they've set up that as a challenge. Is it Uprising, I think, at Christmas? For Red Pro. So, you know, we're starting to see that connection in this country. So, if it, whether it gets over there or not, I don't know. Then we had Tanahashi, Hikaleo and uh, Tamatonga against the Good Brothers and Jay White. Why are we getting this again? I, I don't really know. They just took up Jado uh, and Gedo. Do you know, my big takeaway from this is Hikaleo, I think, has come on leaps and bounds. I really think if they want to build him to replace that bad luck Fale role in New Japan, I think he'd be a really good one. You're that gatekeeper, the guy who occasionally earns championship shots but never actually wins belts. I think that'd be really good for Hikaleo because he's he could do the big boots, he could do the, the, the big power moves, he's intimidating. Uh, I think he, he'd be really good in that role. Um, there's lots of hanging arounds in, in this. The only thing that I was really impressed with here was, again, you know, Tanahashi is obviously brilliant. But Tanahashi is so good, he could even make a good brother's beatdown interesting. He could he, he could make an interaction with the good brothers worthwhile. Um, the White and Tabatonga interactions were great, as you'd expect, at the time they were building to a match. So, you know, that was really good. Then we had three singles matches to finish off. And one of these matches uh, was my match of the weekend. Um, it wasn't Okada against Batu Tito. <laughs> you know, that wasn't my match of the weekend. Um, there was a brilliant moment in this, actually. Do you remember um, when Osprey talked about Okada in York Hall and the crowd started chanting F Okada? And it was obviously just that thing, wasn't it, of you know British crowds and that's what they do. And it was probably a bit tongue-in-cheek. Well, one poor fella completely misjudged the room and tried to do that chant here. And nobody went for it. He got booed. Everyone's like, what are you talking about? We love Okada. He's one of the greatest wrestlers who's ever lived. You know, you're not in York Hall now, you mark. It was brilliant. I, feel, I do feel kind of sorry for him. Um, this was very much just a match. But it had an electric crowd behind it. And Okada was showing us all of all of his great moves and his great spots. And the crowd just really went for it. And I think Badu Tito is, is good. 
I know a lot of people, because I, I didn't really, I wasn't hugely familiar with him before he went to New Japan, but it seems to be this bit of a joke that he's there. You know, how's he got there? But everything I've seen of him, he's, he's been all right. I've, I've, not, I've not been disappointed with him. I said one of these matches was my match of the weekend, and it's this one. Uh, Suji against Ishii. I think of the recent excursions, so we're talking Shota Umino, Yota Suji, and Great Okan. I think Yota Suji has had the best excursion in terms of in-ring quality. I think he's really good. And it's funny because you see in this match, or what you don't see rather, you don't see him do anything particularly innovative. You don't see him do things that are from a, a wrestling point of view, a technical point of view, particularly exciting. But he can tell stories so well. And he knows when to do the perfect spot at the perfect time. There's something about his shit-eating grin like in this, he started by he pushed Ishii to the ropes, slapped him in the face, and then grinned. There's just something about that. Like his look, like he's almost good looking, Yotosuji, isn't he? He's good looking in an unconventional way, but you can tell that he thinks he's super handsome. And he's got this cocky, smarmy grin. I think he's great. I am really. Really captivated by Yota Suji at the minute. There was so much in this that, again, just, just ticks everything that I want. Ticks all my boxes. Just forearm exchanges, brutal stuff. Absolutely battering each other all the way through. And you've got all these little moments where, you know, you'd get Ishii being beaten down. And Ishii is so good at having those moments where his expression just changes. You can tell that you've sort of flipped a button. The only other wrestler that does that better is Kota Ibushi. You know, when he goes into murder Ibushi mode. And those moments that Ishii has where he goes, Look, I'm not going to be disrespected by you anymore. And I'm going to fight back. And those moments with Ishii are just so, I find them so brilliant. And the way Ishii sells. Ishii's one of my favourite wrestlers of all time. You know, people talk about the delayed selling, but I don't think that's what it is. Or it is, it is delayed selling. But it's the idea that it puts across in the matches. That Ishii is giving absolutely everything he can to win this match. That's what he's giving us. He might not be perfect. He might not be able to move like the younger wrestlers or the more high-flying wrestlers. He might not be able to have the amazing flying careers of the Okadas and the Omegas of the world. But what he can do is give you absolutely everything that he has. And the way he carries himself like he's constantly on a journey, the way he walks to the ring gets the job done or doesn't get the job done and just walks back. He's a working man, Ishii. He's not here because things have been handed to him. He's here because he's had to scrape and scratch and claw for everything that he's got. And he will give it all because what's important to Ishii is his pride. That's more important to Ishii than, than anything else. His own health. Whether or not he wins the match sometimes, he just has to absolutely kill himself. He will never just lie down. If you want to beat Ishii, you have to kill him. I wish I could be like Ishii. I wish I could. He's somebody who is inspirational in that regard. He, he's just a grafter. He's a worker. 
And he's got to where he is because of that. It's just... And that was it. You know, he was here with the joint cell. You know, they both just collapsed at a couple of points and the crowd went mental. And again, he's collapsing because he's given everything. Not because somebody's hurt him necessarily. Not because he's been forced to be in this position by somebody else. But because he's forced himself to give everything to the match. You know, huge lariats. And they were, do you know what Yota Suji could do in this as well? He could have a believable near fall. Because we know he's, he's, he's more than likely not going to win. It's 99.9% in Ishii's favour. But there were a few times when you felt like, oh, maybe. And that's the mark of a great wrestler. And that's how I know that uh, Suji is on another level. And I realised all the way through this that this is what I want my wrestling to be. I don't want my wrestling to be like that FTR Aussie Open match where everything felt like a spot that had been planned backstage. I want it to be an effort. I want it to be grounded and real and feel like a scrap and a fight. And I think this match was better than the Aussie Open FTR. And it's weird because, you know, I, I, I know I appreciate it. I can hear you saying you don't have to make that distinction. It doesn't have to be a comparison. And I can completely understand and absolutely see why somebody would prefer the Aussie Open FTR match. And it is, we're into the point now where it's just preference choices. But to me, the choice is really easy. I want to watch Ishii and, and Suji try and kill each other. I don't want to watch Aussie Open and FTR run through some spots they planned. I know that sounds really grumpy, doesn't it? I know that sounds like I'm, I'm just really grouchy. But yeah, the, the, this match was more me, I think, this one. And I, I would... I would I felt like the crowd reacted to it in a more genuine way as well. There was no fight forever here, you know, like there was in the uh, the tag match. It was genuine emotion. Like when Suji... Like Suji won the crowd over with grit and effort. They were booing him at the start. And he, he, was, he was trying to be booed, to be fair. It wasn't like, you know, he was going against ECE, the most over babyface of all the babyfaces. Because I'm not unique in this analysis. Everybody loves uh, Ishii, and everybody knows why they love Ishii. But he was able, Suji was able to win them over, and it became almost a, a face versus face thing. Great match. This is, this is the one I'd watch. If you're going to watch one match, I mean, I suppose... For the zeitgeist of the, 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 the conversation and the cultural relevance, it's got to be the tag match. But if you're just asking me about which was the better match, it was this one. I thought it was great. Then we had the main event of the whole thing. Zack Sabre Jr. against Naito. And I never get over how much of a pleasure it is to see Zack Sabre Jr. work. I feel like I want to see more technical wrestling but with the caveat that it's like Zack Sabre Jr. does it. Everything he does is so violent and so sudden and so painful looking. He's just absolutely brilliant. And against Naito here, they played it so well because Naito was basically trying to wind him up. You know, he was patting him on the head, he was patronising him, he was mocking him at the start by doing the test of strength thing where he puts an arm up and then suddenly changes. You know, he's he's, he's realising that what Zack Sabre Jr. wants to be and needs to be is the smartest wrestler in every room that he's in. And if he feels like somebody's outsmarting him, that's going to annoy him. 
And it was just, it, this was, match was full of those simple little stories like that. Zack Sabre Jr. tells these so well, you know, that he is a technical wrestler, but he struggles when it gets to the striking and the violence. He just crumples and he collapses. What he can do is taunt you into doing that and potentially grab your arm and twist you around. But he's taking a risk if he does that, so he doesn't always do that, or he does it later in the match. And Naito understood that as well. He knew he needed to get this into strikes and to, and, and, and to violence quickly because that's how he's going to beat him. But then there's always the risk, like I say, of, of him being able to grab a limb or reverse it. There was so much of this match that I absolutely loved. You know, Zack Sabre Jr. doing the little things like banging an arm against the mat and then demanding that the referee checks him by saying things that that's broken, his arm's broken, check on him. And that sounds like such a minor little thing to pick up on. And maybe it's a really obvious thing to do, but it just added so many layers to this. We were treated to a brilliant smorgasbord of amazing submissions. And I always wonder... I always wonder how improvised they are, you know, from Zack Sabre Jr. Does he plan what these are? Or can he just cursively put people in these amazing spots and then come up with a silly brass brass eye reference afterwards to give him a name? You know, he's just, he's just a brilliant, brilliant wrestler. And I, I thought this was, was a great, great match. Um, it was a shame, I think, that Naito won. I think it would have been nice to have Zack Sabre Jr. winning the whole crowd. But he had those destinos out of nowhere. And I, I really liked how definitive it was. There was no kickouts on the destinos. And I, I, I really appreciate that sometimes. He had to do two to put him away, but he just did them back to back. So this was a really solid, this four-star main event. Exactly what you'd imagine from Zack Sabre Jr. and Naito. It was, it was great. So that's Royal Quest 2. Let's wrap things up. So was this as good as Royal Quest 1? Well, no, it wasn't. And uh, it, it feels like a little bit of an unfair thing to say because it, it never was going to be. And the expectations probably shouldn't have been there. But they called it Royal Quest 2. You're inviting those comparisons yourself. And I maybe would have given it a different name. I don't know. You know, the venue wasn't impressive. There weren't as many tickets sold. It, it just, uh, you know, the card wasn't stacked to be as good as it was. But I think there's some real gems here. I think really how you feel about the weekend really comes down to how you feel about that tag match because I thought the first night was a little bit lacklustre. I really enjoyed the second night though. You know, there were so many matches on that second night. I'm, I'm thinking particularly the main and the semi-main where they'd announced that 10 minutes had passed or even 20 minutes had passed in the case of the main event. And I couldn't believe it. And if there's, there's no better sign of a good match, is there? That... You, you didn't realise how much time had passed. So that's my little foray into New Japan then. Um, please follow me on Twitter at EurograpsEXP. Uh, the place to go is the Discord. If you go in the Voices of Wrestling Discord, there's a Eurograps Express room. We have talked about mince pies, pork pies, scotch eggs, cheese boards... Uh, all sorts of exciting stuff like that. Very rarely wrestling, if I'm completely honest with you. <laughs> but, you know, it's a lovely community. There's lots of great people in there. and we, 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 we have a good time. So make sure you join us. And I will see you in a couple of weeks for more British and European wrestling. Mm-hmm.